This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome to Greeting the Apocalypse. Sarah Coles, <laughs> well, you dropped the ball, I mate. I don't have any headphones. You can talk. <laughs> um, you were gonna, you, I thought you were taking on, the reins me. tonight. Taking the reins. Wait, wait. Oh. <laughs> Hello. Wow. Okay. We, Sorry, you, you'd everyone. think we were super fluidy with that level of like preparedness. <laughs> welcome to Greening the Apocalypse, a show about <laughs> solutions to ecological and societal and headphone problems. Uh, Bush is away. I am premenstrual. It's going to be magical. <laughs> I'm joined in the studio by Adam Grubb and Jed McCartney. How are you both? I think that's where you're supposed to say your name where you said premenstrual, but otherwise, <laughs> great, yeah, great work. I, I think we're better than you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a bit scattered, to yeah. say the least. Ah, yeah. um, today's going to be good, though. We're going to be talking about tiny houses and community land trusts, and our guests are a holistic architect and a facilitator and trainer with a background in sustainable living and project management. So Sweet. And later in the show, we're going to uh, hear a little interview I did earlier today with a mate who spent um, eight years living in a tiny house, but in a caravan park, so classic style. Oh, like in the old days. Yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah. Look forward to that. So we've got our guests in the studio. Um, I'll introduce them in a moment. Stay tuned, everyone. To kick off the show, I thought I'd read a few lines from the news last week. Jed pointed out to me this happened. Um, a 24-year-old man has been charged over the alleged theft of a tiny house taken from Canberra on Sunday and cited in Queensland about 24 hours later. Queensland police seized the prototype display model in Harvey Bay, 1,416 kilometres north of the capital. The man, believed to be from Canberra, was charged with bringing stolen goods into the state. The house is mounted on a trailer and valued at about $20,000. <laughs> So the, the downside of tiny homes is they yeah. are stealable. Yeah, I was telling my dad that we were <laughs> going to do this interview and he's cockney and glass kind of half full kind of guy and he's like, oh, but what if someone nicks it? That's, that was his first question. I, I, I so, thought that might have been you until I heard it was going to Queensland and I thought maybe there's something you hadn't told us. <laughs> yeah, I do want a tiny house pretty badly. Um, when they're not being stolen by a 24-year-old man believed to be from Canberra, tiny houses are an excellent solution to housing insecurity, enslaving mortgages and banal living situations. So, back in 2012, the Australian Bureau of Stats crunched the numbers and the data showed Australian house sizes are among the biggest worldwide. The average floor area of new houses increased by 37.4% between 1984 and 2003, from 149.7 metres squared to 205.7 metres squared. And by 2015, this was 231 square metres. Holy crap. That's big. And that's... 
So I think that's the highest in the world, Australia. We're, we have bigger houses than the US. And I think if you figure it out on a per-occupier basis, we're possibly even worse again, like not many people living in them. And then we don't we spend most of our time at work and Living we just come dream. home and sleep in these abysmally it's built massive houses. It's a suburban dream. Yeah. Um, many people can't afford to build a 230 square metre house or they don't want to. So tiny houses have captured the imaginations of people who want to live a simpler life with fewer possessions, fewer financial obligations, and they want to live sustainably. Some people see them as a solution when they're priced out of a housing market. In studio, we are joined by Craig Byatt and Liz Fransman, who I recently met through my job as a masseuse. They oh, true. Both, yeah, they both had really bad backs. <laughs> and then when I asked them why, it was because they had finished building a tiny house. <laughs> so welcome to Greening the Apocalypse. Hi, thanks for having us, Sarah. <laughs> um, Hi, Sarah. Firstly, our first question is for Craig. You are a holistic architect. Um, what what does that mean? Oh, that means uh, basically I design. I design with um, the intent of, of working with community, nature, trades, builders. Yeah, it involves everything in the process and the design process and the construction process needs to... Um, enhance and give back to all of those. So yeah. when you were at uni and other students made those polystyrene models, <laughs> were yours, yours made out of nori sheets or something? No, <laughs> it was sustainably um, produced balsa wood. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I thought that you had an answer and to that. And cardboard. <laughs> Great. So are you quite interested in the materials that you use? Oh, very interested um, because... What I've found, you were talking about the 230 square metre house and the only way to afford that is to lessen the quality of the materials. And a cheap oh. way to build yep. is to use polystyrene. It's mm. good insulation. Mm-hmm. So it's a petrochemical and basically it doesn't breathe. So when you work with natural materials, the basically the inside and the outside environments breathe together. Yep. And then it's a way of um, detailing those uh, materials to actually give you comfort all year round. So that's what I do. So I design houses that don't need heating or cooling using natural breathing wall systems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and passive solar. Passive solar is so important. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah imagine polystyrene also on, on going back that, to that wouldn't be so good in a fire. It's you've seen those <laughs> buildings go up. Yeah, yeah. that's um, a sandwich Pops, panel with right. aluminium on both sides of polystyrene. So oh, the terrible. fire went straight up the middle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, you're talking about the what was the one London? in England? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. So passive solar is part yes. of it. Um, natural building materials. Uh, yes. What else defines your, a classic house that you or that you design? Oh well, uh, I suppose it's the process itself. So mm. I find builders who are passionate as well, trades mm. who are passionate. Um, the clients are the most important people when I'm doing houses because it's their vision and their how they want to live for the next foreseeable future. So it's important for them to lessen their need to spend money on energy. Mm-hmm. The basics for survival. So yep. you can design houses which manages that really well. So yeah, yeah. Yep. What about you, um, Liz? Maybe for people that aren't familiar, could you explain what a tiny house is to the audience? Uh, are you asking for a definition? <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> well, 
I mean, you know, broadly, a tiny house is a, a smaller home, really. When you talk about a tiny house on wheels, yeah, which is, I think, what a lot of the, you know, the tiny house porn has been on the internet lately is, is those those constructions on the back of trailers. So that's a, a tiny house on wheels. And look, I believe that there's, you know, there isn't any real definitional boundary around it but it's a it's it's about that sense of it being smaller i think it's something like less than 400 square feet is that right for the uh, the american yeah yeah. um so whatever that translates to in in australian measurements so it's smaller it's on a trailer roughly it's 4.2 meters high to allow it to take it on the road um, to meet codes and i think it's 2.4 meters wide yeah so those are some of the sort of the dimensional aspects, but um, a tiny house, I think I read a lovely description about them from a guy called Fred, who is Fred's Tiny Houses, the, the Fred behind Fred's Tiny Houses, and he was articulating the difference by saying that, you know, when you define it as compared to a caravan, mm. it's the, the purpose of it. So caravans are built with an intention for lightness Mm-hmm. and mobility mm-hmm. yeah whereas a tiny house there's more of an, of an intention around using materials that are aesthetically pleasing that serve those purposes that craig was talking about about that breathability and comfort mm-hmm. um and they're not yes they're mobile but it's not about traveling as such yep. so yeah there's different materials that go for different different purposes there Thank yep. you for not... That was a really good definition. Yeah, you I knew you'd just, be the right You could have just thrown ask. it back and gone, well, there's two words. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for one step. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Craig, you studied permaculture back in 1994. No, it was after uni, so it would have oh. been 96. Oh, so 96. I was reading Bill Mollison and David Holgram during yep. my final years at university. Um, and that got me on to, I've studied owner-builder technologies through that time as well. That's where the holistic journey started. Um, and then I did a lot of woofing and um, worked up, you know, build, doing fruit picking, building muddies, yeah. you know, all the way through around Australia. Awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's quite interesting. And th- through the study of permaculture, I guess, it, it's learning the holistic way systems work. So same for houses. So you can't see a house separate from the actual landscape or the people that use it. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you're like, I want to get out of here, and then you drive away with the house, and then it is oh, then, like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. stolen. That's not really holistic. That yeah. one, it's gone. Twenty-four-year-old man from Canberra. Um, so, Liz, one of your jobs is as a facilitator. So hmm. I want to know if you facilitated the building of the house that you two made. Like, how did it work? <sighs> An architect and a facilitator. <laughs> I mean, or is it just love? Like, love? Well, oh, look, it was a dream. It was a blessing. <laughs> it was all these things. Uh, look, we were actually having a chat about it before we came in and... I think if, if you went back to the, the origins of it, um, both of us were interested in this notion of, of living simpler um, and living in smaller spaces. I, I was well on that path before meeting Craig and yep. obviously Craig had a, a passion and an interest in it as part of his architectural practice. When we got together, we were together for about 18 months and we had a bit of a, well, it was a bit of a big thing to go through. I had an ectopic pregnancy and unfortunately I nearly died. 
So this was the beginning of last year. Yeah. Well, fortunately, I'd say fortunately. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, I nearly died but didn't die. Yeah. So the, the, the good thing out of this, or one of the things that we were talking about was, you know, we were coming out of this, it was quite a big grief. thing, both of us to go through, shock, grief, mm. you know, you name all those human emotions surrounding that. And, you know, what do we do coming out of that? We go, well, what is the, the most healing thing we could do together? <laughs> Let's build a house, <laughs> which, yeah. Well, it seems to have worked. Funnily enough, like I think, um, Sarah, one of the things you were mentioning was um, the challenge of relationships making it through unscathed. And I would say it is it is a lot to do with the house, but it's also nothing about the house. Yeah. It's, it's about your relationship with yourself, um, your self-understanding and your relationship with others. Um, even beyond our relationship as a couple. It was everyone else that we came into contact with and the fact that actually learning to ask for help was a big one. It was actually a big one for me, um, being fairly independent up into my late 30s and realising, actually, I can't really do this myself. There are limitations here and both of us having to learn that. I don't know, what would, I, what would you say, Craig, about yeah, us working together? Yeah, really well. <laughs> no, it has its moments. So yeah. we had moments and, um, you know, the egotistical architect comes out at times <laughs> where, you know, when there's a question coming from Liz, I throw back, well, trust me. Yeah. You know, I know what I'm doing. You like that one? Um, it doesn't work too well, you know. You've got to be yeah. mindful that you're dealing with, like, a, I didn't treat Liz as a client. I was treating her as my partner um, and I'm building this thing, you know. So, um, yeah, I I learnt over the time not to do that and and more explain it, you know. And it was basically because tiny houses, they don't need building regs or planning, right? This is Mm. beautiful if it's on wheels. So I was just throwing Liz some sketches and just go, let's do this and just throw a bit of butter paper at it and go, do you like that? And she you know, not really able to read the drawing properly. <laughs> it wasn't until it started to come to life where it made sense. And, you know, that whole time it causes a bit of anxiety yeah. Yeah. about what the money's going towards. You know, yeah. trust me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. yeah it was massive. So, there was lots of big self-realisations. But mm. One lovely thing, or it was a kind of a quirky thing, and perhaps it's about it being in a smaller space. When we were building it, we had the structure up. You know, say we'd have, we'd get to a heated moment, we'd have a bit of a hot spot, <laughs> bit of an argument. I'd be going, okay, time out. We've got to take it outside of the house. We can't have this energy in this tiny house. It's just not big enough to hold this kind of negative energy. We've got to make it, you know, a commitment. Have the arguments outside. So we we kind of stuck to that. I might get Craig to help me design mine because I think I'll need an argument room that can be attached to the outside. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Something you slide down into from the top floor and then yeah, just plow into that. And once you reach the bottom, you don't realise you you don't need an argument anymore. Just shake it out on the way down. Yeah, great. It's good. Thank you. It's been very very useful. And now we're going to just talk about some of the basics. Like, what are the key reasons the tiny house movement exists? Do you guys want to go for that one? Craig, you're looking at me. Yeah, go, Liz. You go. (laughs) Well, look, I'll have a go at it. It's a big, chunky question, that one. But, I mean, one of the the biggest ones, I think, 
that's impacting Australia is is the whole issue of housing affordab- affordability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, clearly that's that's a big thing that's driving it. But I'd also say that there's a cluster of trends that are kind of all converging at the moment. And I think, well, certainly for myself, if I look at my own interest in tiny houses, I was also very interested in these trends of um, voluntary simplicity, minimalism, yeah, just living more simply Mm -hmm. um, before the idea of, you know, creating a tiny house came along. Yeah. So I think there's other, uh, let's call them positive trends that are emerging in society as a reaction to a whole bunch of stuff, I think, about the way our world works. Mm. But at the same time, there's these challenging trends as well, just about people just being crushed by a whole lot of economic conditions that are making it harder to have a secure, comfortable place of of your own to live in. Yeah, I was looking at land. I was like, Mm. where's the cheapest land in Victoria on realestate.com? And I think I zoomed in on the picture of the land and there was just, it was salt encrusted. You could see (laughs) the salt in the real estate photo and I thought... (laughs) Shit, what am I going to do about this? <laughs> so, yes, dark days. <laughs> and dark other salty days. language was, yeah, yeah I'm sure. Um, and I was, uh, I started looking into like a history of this kind of thing, and there was lots of prefab houses made after the war in the 40s. Mm. And then um, after hurricanes, they, you know, for post disaster housing. And then in the US, there's been a lot of articles lately about tiny houses to deal with the problem of homelessness. Mm. And there's a famous tiny house uh, village community in Washington that was a tent community and then people built these houses. Yeah, right. So there's a lot of... It's an interesting space. But anyway, we'll get to that later. But Craig and Liz, you've nearly finished building one. How long has it taken? Um, it's 18 months so far. Mm. Yeah. Um, Did you yeah. do most of it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I had a couple of weeks with a good chippy just yep. to get straight lines. And then, yep. um, yeah, um, of course, plumbing and electrical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but basically all in my spare time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how does that work? You, so you work full-time or yeah. something and then you do it on the weekends yeah yeah pretty much but um i've got my own business so basically i was just taking chunks of time to really nail down certain aspects of it mm-hmm. so one of the key ones was to get the roof on so i just nailed yeah. it for about Is that three the or four hardest weeks solid. would you say fitting no. the roof what's the hardest thing the hardest thing i reckon the hardest thing would be the day-to-day grind i did cry when I was doing the roof shedding, like <laughs> physically broke about three times. You should have videoed it and made it. <laughs> yeah. Did a like, selfie cry. You know, holistic architect breaks down yeah. in tears. It could have gone viral. <laughs> I have this classic picture, well, you know, scored on my memory in my head of Craig on top of the roof pulling this sheet under the light of this crazy full moon and we knew it was going to storm the very next day and he's just yeah. pulling this sheet up yeah. by himself and Get I'm going, please don't die. That's <laughs> like, fantastic though. Yeah. That you have it's that image amazing. now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> My friends built one and they did it in all in one go, two months. Wow. They That's s- and they've recommended that to me as mm. an approach. Yeah. yeah. What do you yeah, think? I, definitely. I reckon mm. you get the if you get a roll on, you're in full swing and, and it flows, yeah. Mm, yeah. Like the stop start, I had to recharge the batteries so, you mm. know, I've got a computer and a drawing board at work. So I mm. had then had to shift that into gear to build. So yeah, yeah it's taxing yeah. on the body. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And because it's uh, you don't need a permit 
to build it. Mm. You also don't need a licensed builder, I take it. No, you don't. Oh. Yeah. You want to build exciting. one, Adam? Let's build one. Uh, sure. <laughs> okay. Bring it. But in I terms of... Japanese, apocalypse. minimalist, <laughs> Danish... Kind of one. <laughs> that's that's culture bending, but sure. Okay, that yeah. sounds good. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about your solar power and like your off. Is it off grid the house that you made? Yes, we're We're heading there. Yeah. yeah. And so, can you tell us some like greening the apocalypse? Want to know about toilets all the time? What, yeah. What's going on with your toilet? Well, we're we're not scared of um, dealing with our waste. So we've got a beautiful little composting system and yep. um, our, I should start, our tiny home isn't meant for travel. It, mm-hmm. it is more of a permanent home. So I've designed this thing on a pretty kick-ass um, semi-trailer bogey yep. so it can take a lot of weight. It's deemed movable but essentially it's a, a, f- a full house. Um, I've designed it to all certification specifications so mm-hmm. when the time comes I can get a planning permit, building permit straight away yeah. and signed off. So the toilet, we've got a lot of space underneath the trailer. So we've got a big chambered toilet. I think it's nature loo, if we can mm-hmm. say that. But yeah. Um, yeah, so it's awesome. Just a drop pit toilet. It needs mm-hmm. a 12 volt fan. Yeah. Um, we haven't hooked it up at the moment, but yeah, generally no smell. Mm-hmm. And then okay. it lasts about, I rec- they reckon about three months for two, two and a half people. Yep. And then you've got to change the chambers out, let that one sit and while you're filling up the new one, and then you compost that. That's great. First chamber, you know, goes back to land. That's so how perfect. cool is that? Um, you got solar on that thing as well? Yeah, we're going to have solar. Yep. Um, and we purchased a an old forklift battery, so deep cycle lead-acid battery. Yep. Um, and these things are just beyond what we need but we got it for two and a half grand so wow yeah very and this thing's going to last a long long time yeah you know it's not like the um lithium you better hope stuff. that um 24 year olds from canberra aren't stealing your house right now <laughs> yeah, while can't. you're in the studio i'd no love to way. see them try <laughs> <laughs> um and then who did like you got a plumber and so when you build these things you have to get a proper electrician and a proper plumber, I, is that... Just for safety, yes. Yeah. Get, it, get it as if it would be certified because you can't skimp on good plumbing electrical. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Qualified, yeah. Just and what about um, things like bushfires? Mm. You know, there's a lot of laws around houses and bushfires, so what do you do? Like, how do you know you're safe? with? Um, well, I've designed mine for... There's a bushfire attack level, it's called, yeah. um, in the council I work in, and Basically, they grade your property to the slope and the bushland around and give it a rating. So I've designed mine for a bow 29, which is pretty high mm. up there. And it depends on cladding yeah. and it depends on the way embers could yeah. congregate and then start a fire and combust yeah. near your house. Yeah. So I've designed mine to bow 29, which is, you know, pretty good, you know. Mm. After that, you're getting really hardcore in terms of... Um, shutters and, and non-combustible external materials, but yeah, hardwoods, great. metal sheeting. And one great. thing I'd probably add to that is, because I've been thinking about it a bit, Sarah, is, you know, just the, the tiny houses on wheels specifically, just about that that notion of 
people living in them in more bushfire prone areas mm. do they provide you know if it, if they are a tiny house that's quite easy to rig up to a vehicle and move quite simply ours is a bit more of a challenge to move mm. does that provide um, possibilities for people you know when it is times of high fire danger to literally rig it up go to the it coast go somewhere where it's safer mm. you know, i don't i don't know there's there's some possibilities in terms of need to build one that, that turns kind of into a boat. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know? That's Transformer next. tiny house. Yeah. <laughs> I like plane. it. Um, I wanted to talk to Jed because he had a funny story about a tiny house situation. Uh, I'm not so sure it was funny, but oh. um, the... <laughs> Com- my my mate's um, yeah, daughter and, and her boyfriend built a tiny house on basically a caravan frame and uh, and they split up so they had the big debate about where it was going and I suppose it's good in one way because one of the partners gets to take the house. <laughs> but, but it was quite comedic in the way they were doing it and they almost toppled it down a hill and then they had trouble getting it out so it was all these things they hadn't actually thought about yeah um they thought this is where we want it and this is how we're going to build it but they hadn't thought what if we actually have Mm. to move it so when they came to moving it it was um i've got very lucky i think they had about a centimeter to get through the gate anyway um the main thing now is one of the tiny house is good for solving the problem of not having enough money for a house, but then it still mm. doesn't solve the problem of land no, to put it on. Doesn't. So we wanted to talk to you about that that side of things. So an off grid tiny house is good on a farm in Pomonal or something where land's inexpensive. But what do you do if you want to be more close to the city, or like you guys would be quite close to the city for work? Maybe like mm. how do you work around that? Yeah, good question. So, you know, these things, literally, if you take it back to the caravan reference, they can be parked in driveways, um, but they can be parked in blocks of land, you know, but at the moment it's legal to live in them permanently. It's legal? No, illegal. Yeah, illegal. So they're they're deemed a caravan, basically. So this is where the local planning laws are falling behind a bit because there's a rise in people going this way. Mm. Um, We have to educate the planners um, and councils to actually regulate how people can permanently live in because it's not a caravan, it's a house. So. So could you theoretically buy a block of land in Brunswick? demolish the old house that's on it and then put three or four tiny houses Well, on that's it. the thing. It's under planning. So these... As long as you left. You have to go for a... houses p- or something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So basically you'll have to go for a planning permit and whether council deems right, you've, you've now got four dwellings on that property. Um, if the land isn't subdivided, then... I don't see there is an issue, you know, in terms of regulating this thing. So in a normal house block, you could have four tiny houses, like you yeah. say. So you'd be allowed to build them, no question, if they're mm. movable or yep. below a certain size. But whether you're allowed to live in them permanently, that's, that's the exactly it. Yeah. That is well, the question. if you build four and you rotate between them, like you're going to say... <laughs> there is always yeah. a way around so the system. How do you define permanently living in them? You know, they say yeah, yeah. up to whatever, uh, a couple of months. I think it's 90 yeah. days, mm. yeah, you can live in a caravan. Yeah. 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 90. Right. Mm. So if you had four caravans, you're saying that you could mm. have four <laughs> families just yeah. rotate? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> See? 
right, cool. See, this I is the thing we have to do yeah. until council gets their head around it and goes, yeah, right, this, this is how we're going to do it. It's like a perverse um, outcome. Though. Earlier <laughs> this week, um, Craig, you emailed me a tiny house planning resource that mm-hmm. aims to assist planners, policymakers and the wider community to better understand the emerging tiny house movement. So that was really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've gotten halfway through. Um, there's a lot of background information, which is really interesting. So it just mm-hmm. goes through the whole history of this. But it's also educating councils that there is a growing need of people choosing this way of life. So I guess councils really need to step up and have a good look at their own planning laws because at the moment in Victoria we've got a thing called a dependent persons unit, which is basically a granny flat, yeah. and it's a temporary dwelling. Tiny houses are a temporary dwelling or could be. Yeah. Um, so that falls under a dependent persons unit and you can automatically have one of these dependent persons unit if there isn't another one on site. So you've got a permanent residence, you can have a dependent persons unit as well. Okay. As long as it's detached um, and it's deemed removable, mm-hmm. um, tiny houses fit into that mould, so mm-hmm. particularly on wheels. But you can't have more than one. Um, at all. So, so you know, how do we start to work out ways in which people can afford land? Because this is, it's back to land, you know. Mm. Um, we can't afford land. So what if, you know, a group of friends got together and purchased land? Is that and we all had community a community trust? The community land community trust. Community land trust? Yeah, so we're looking at the, one of the ways is to actually put the land under trust and then allowing people to build houses or bring houses on. Mm. to actually, I suppose, um, look after that land and, um, yeah, build a community. Great. You are on Green the Apocalypse on 3RRR and we've been talking about tiny houses with Craig Byatt and Liz Fransman. And earlier today I was reading this article about... Um, it was it was in a publication called Strong Towns called Reclaiming Redneck Urbanism, What Urban Planners Can Learn from Trailer Parks. And it said that... The liberal land use regulations with the narrow streets shared by all users, ironically we find that in many trailer parks there's a traditional urban design more common in European and Japanese cities. And they said that as far as low-income neighbourhoods go, trailer parks are often fairly clean and relatively safe. And there's this interesting private governance model where park management provides order within the park, upholding certain basic standards on cleanliness and maintenance, while also dealing with unwanted visitors and settling disputes among neighbours. Um, and also that because residents can pick up and leave, that there's a kind of competition for that good governance. And there's also, they mentioned, a lot of self-governments in a caravan park where people deal with their own disputes. So I thought I'd talk to my friend Nick, who spent has just... He was actually moving house at the time after spending eight years in a caravan park in one of Melbourne's western suburbs. So let's hear from Nick. So... So, Nick, how long were you living in the caravan park? Uh, about eight years. Yeah, and you're yeah. you're literally moving house now, or just setting up in a new place? I, I am. No, I'm in the process. Exactly right. I'm in the process. Yeah, I'm just slowly um, moving across. Yeah. Yeah, and and you weren't living in a caravan though, right? Tell me about the place. No, no. Um, so I bought a sort of a container, I guess, like a ship, like a shipping container. It's really a milk truck or a poultry truck that had been. Yeah. In a smash, so I just purchased the back of it, which is the refrigerated container, I guess. I was insulated, probably had um, maybe six inch walls that were uh, made of fiberglass either side with styrofoam in between, so I was really well insulated. 
I picked it up from a like a truck spares place for I think I delivered um, for about six hundred and sixty bucks, and that includes delivery. I think it probably cost me about four hundred and fifty bucks for the actual container. Probably about I think it's about six meters long and maybe two and a half meters across. Yeah. Two meters across. It's probably a stallion. Maybe call it a twelve pallet truck or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it had no front of the truck, so it was just simply the back part, uh, mm-hmm. what they call like a pantech or the, the back part of it. Yeah. Had a few solid doors and a roller door, and I started from there and um, sort of moved the bed in, put a couple of fish tanks in. Uh, and then I sort of got a bit crazy and started building off the side of it, so building annex roofing off the side, put some bullnose, um, colorbond roofing up. I picked up and just sort of built that on the side as a... At first, I put a kitchen on the side of it, and I put a sort of a library, and I had lots of books. So I just sort of became... It just sort of grew and got bigger and bigger. There was no, like, no rules. Just, just build as, as you will. There's no real rules in a caravan park because technically it's sort of movable. And I guess just for our listeners, you mentioned you moved a few fish tanks in there. When you described the place to me a couple of years ago, so you've been there probably six years, it sounded like there was a lot of fish tanks, as that's how you make your money. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you did, but it basically... Was wall. Yeah, it was water wall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was water wall. It was about an inch from my bed, surrounding my bed in every direction. I had tanks sort of overhanging my head as well. It was pretty tight. Wow. Um, I, put pallet rack- I ended up putting pallet racking in, so I had the tanks stacked on top of each other. It was probably about 5,000 litres of water, or maybe 6,000 litres altogether with all the little tanks. Wow. It sounds like a fascinating place. I'm sorry I never got to visit it now you've moved. Oh, it was warm, it was humid, it was a bit noisy. I'm reflecting back on it now. I'm in a, in a normal house. I realise how quiet houses are without all the fish tanks. And, <laughs> but the temperature was 28 degrees all year round. Yeah. I only heated a few of the tanks, and the whole thing stayed warm all the time. It was really um, perfect for that kind of environment. Probably better as a fish room than it was as a bedroom, but it functioned at both, as both for quite a long time. So, and it was cheap. It was cheap to live there. It was cheap to um, cheap to run all the tanks. It was That was good. I think I might regret moving moving and getting a normal... I got my first electricity bill and I realised that without six inches of foam surrounding my walls that, that things cost a lot of money to heat. Really? Well, that's that's one of the advantages of tiny living, I guess. But since we're talking about that with other people on the show tonight, what I thought I would chat to you about... So I was reading this article today, which is it's from the US and it's called uh, Reclaiming Redneck Urbanism. What urban, urban, what urban planners can learn, learn from trailer parks. <laughs> And one of the things that they, well, they talk about things like this, this for, for low-income housing, it's surprisingly safe and clean. And so we could talk about all those things, but maybe just before we get there, just paint a picture of the place that you, you were living. I presume most of the other people there were living in, in caravans. Oh, definitely. There was one other person who was living in like a sort of shanty town sort of truck that got dropped down as well. And that, yep. <laughs> that gave me a bit of a sneaky idea and a bit of a precedent. But no, it's a really interesting mix of people you get. There's definitely lots of bogans, um, good proportion of bogans. You get a lot of travellers as well, though, probably about 10% travellers. A couple of hippies as well. Um, bit of an ethnic diverse group compared to what I find in the rest of Melbourne. There was definitely a lot of, um, you had a lot of Maoris and Samoans and um, different groups of people there and probably less of the the more sort of other varieties of people. There's a lot, like maybe 90% white people, 80% white people and 20% either Samoans or, or New Zealand Maoris. Yeah. And how did it rate in terms of socialising on site or just a kind of level of community? Did you hang out with people there a lot? I did. I did at the start, probably when I first moved in. I think once I started working a lot more, I just sort of threw myself into work rather than spending heaps of time in the caravan park. There's a certain lot of truckies there. And I think at first I was learning a lot about a different type of people that I hadn't met before. Um, definitely a lot of truckies, a lot of people who are either... Uh, people who dropped drop out of life, lots of divorcees and people who had sort of sad stories or left houses and left relationships and then just you know popped up a caravan and sort of started a new life. Yeah. 
for for them was it was that a place where they sort of found a new community? Do you think? I reckon they did. There's plenty of them that had like little you know beer kegs in the backyard and meet. You know, have a little backyard area where they'd get together and drink beer together and eat meat in the barbecue. And no, that that, that definitely goes on. Yeah, definitely probably an undercurrent of drug culture as well that sort of spreads through it as well. Yeah, right. I I remember asking you about that. Oh well, something about like um whether you know whether it was a safe place or something and and you said something along the lines of three of your neighbors uh, are amphetamines users and I thought you were about to say well so you have to watch your stuff but your point was there's people awake all hours the, of the day so it's very difficult <laughs> for anyone to break in was that am I remembering yeah. that correctly yeah no you remember that correctly and I think thieves often don't steal from thieves or I don't know how it is or thieves don't steal from poor people let's put it that way so I don't think there was a huge amount of theft within the caravan park but definitely there was um, I think every coke machine was targeted yeah. every every sort of you know machine that could be picked up and hauled away I think I remember seeing someone walk past and offer like 30 or 40 Red Bulls under, you know, under their shirt and was just sort of passing them around and was obviously raided the machine and just pockets full of coins and was just walking around the park handing them out so it was a bit of Robin Hoodism yeah. happening within the park and I remember seeing a group of people trying to you know all shake a coke machine back and forth to sort of I mean, some sort of trick where you get the money out of it. So there's definitely a bit of um, uh, honour among thieves, perhaps, or a bit of a you know thievery corporation, perhaps, running uh, at the park as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, people people feeding off each other. And on the other hand, I think a lot of people who were out of that were just not. I think it was dangerous. No, I don't. I think it was pretty pretty safe place. I definitely was never. Uh, I never really had anything thieved myself personally, but. Yeah. I think it was pretty good. I think it's definitely a hotbed for thieves, though, and definitely probably a hotbed for undesirables, perhaps. Perhaps I was one of those undesirables, maybe. I'm not, yeah, <laughs> desirable, I guess. But no, definitely uh, there'd be people who, who found it hard to get housing elsewhere. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to rent a house somewhere else. It often popped up there, so there'd always be a... And there'd always be dealers within the park, of course. There's always yeah. a, So there's definitely an undercurrent of drug culture there and a lot of alcoholics there as well. There's one great guy, just every time I see him, he's just got a bike and his carton of beer just fits in perfectly in, the, in between the, the triangle of the bike. It just wedges in perfectly and he just goes back and forth like regularly, like you know, he might do two, two trips a day yeah, yeah. with beers and just, there's so much drinking going on, it's, it's enormous. So, how, how did you... Again, I don't think it makes it unsafe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But there must be um, disputes. It is a bit of a pressure cooker of um, yeah. situations. So how did... How, how much... Was that sorted out between the people themselves and how much did park management step in? No, I'll be honest, I think park management stepped in quite a bit. Or There's always one, one person who gets the job of being the caretaker Yeah. and usually he's a really, a really big guy. And, yeah. um, and uh, at the moment there's a big giant married guy who's the caretaker who just sort of walks around pulling everything off. But look, I think there was a percentage where things got called off but there was a bit of a, like a, a bit of a group mentality where Often people would figure out who was in the wrong. And there'd, be, there'd always be bystanders and you get people sort of walking past and every neighbour would get involved. So there is a... Because uh, you're living right on top of each other. So it's pretty mm. hard to have a dispute without everyone knowing about it. Yeah. But there were there were some crazy disputes. Um, I did... You know, there was a lot, honestly. Yeah. Uh, I, did, I did come home to finding a car with a baseball bat just standing at the front. He just told me to leave. And I was like, I'm, I don't know who you are. And he's like, I don't know who you are, but you better leave. And just <laughs> came to the car with a baseball bat and I just started backing off and came back a couple of hours later. So oh, yeah, there's yeah. plenty of... Um, Plenty of hot situations there, and people threatening each other with all sorts of various tools. And no, that that yeah, to be honest, that did happen quite a bit. There was definitely, um, yeah. but I think it always takes two people to get. You know, you can sort of. I mean, a lot of people just stick to themselves and have no problems at all. Yeah, I think people just again, it's a hot bed. People get a bit frustrated. Someone's drinking, and someone else is drinking, and they you know throwing the bottles over each other's fences. And there are no fences, so they just sort of 
living on top of each other a little bit. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. But there's definitely areas where people were, there's definitely some retirees that have popped up little spots. There's, I reckon you could probably break up the caravan park into areas that'd be a region, there's sort of like a little retirement area where everyone's quite quiet and it's quite mm-hmm. quite peaceful and everyone just sort of, you know, a lot of um, elderly retirees and they just sort of walk around chatting, playing cards on the deck and it's just a different vibe altogether. Yeah, right. And there's other areas where you just, you just cross sort of 50 metres into another row and it's just another story altogether. Yeah. And it's changing now as well, so... Okay. And what made what made you decide to move? Well, that's part of it, too. I was say. Part of, I mean, they're actually changing it now, so it's, it might be a little miniature version of gentrification. So they're ripping out all... Anyone who's got sort of little caravans or what I had, which is sort of like, I guess, a meat shack, meat truck type thing. Mm. Um, they're running a whole lot of cabins down along that row now, so they'll be renting those out at a much higher rate. So I was paying probably $100 a week uh, when I first moved in. Yeah. Probably over eight years, it changed to about 130 over the time. They'll put in some really nice cabins there now and charge maybe triple that for the same spot. Yeah, uh, and they run plumbing properly through it all, and um, so everyone who's living in really tiny caravans or or living in sort of handmade shacks are being asked to either move or relocate or perhaps move out. Yeah. yeah. Well, man, I hope you um you take to house living, <laughs> and um thanks for thanks for sharing a bit of your story on greening the apocalypse. That time will tell whether I get domesticated or not. Thanks for the call. <laughs> Cheers, mate. So that was Nick Lamberton, tropical fish breeder, just explaining his experience of the last eight years living in a tiny house of a fairly roughshod production, but in a in a caravan park. You're listening to Green the Apocalypse. We've been talking about tiny houses with holistic architect Craig Byatt and facilitator of all things good, these <laughs> Fransmen. Um, and they are going to come back because we didn't have enough time to talk about community land trusts. So they'll be coming back on our show in a few months. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, that'll be awesome. Yeah, thank That's you great. so much Thanks for coming. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah thank you. Where do people find out about uh, your respective works? Um, I've just got a Facebook page at the moment because my website's undergoing some maintenance. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think Sarah's going to put it up. There's a, there's a landing page. Oh, there there's is, a landing page. Yeah, there page. is a landing page. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just well, Craig Byatt Architecture. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We'll put a link to your business on our Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. what people do? Yeah. Yep. We can do that. Okay. Yeah. Liz, do you have Look, anything you I'm want to I'm on LinkedIn. Um, but, but, but um, you'll find me behind the scenes on Craig Byatt Architecture's Facebook page, mm. doing a few photos and sharing a few Great. goodies there. Uh-huh. Yeah. We've Fantastic. been so slack lately. Yeah, yeah we've been focusing on the building. building a house. That's right. Like, mm. I think social media can fall by the wayside. You just build a house. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Anyway. But we'll chuck up a few photos um, of, okay. of the tiny in the, over the next few days. Wonderful. So, yeah. Thank you so much. You guys have been great. Thanks, yeah. guys. Thanks, really, thanks really, 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 really good. Wonderful. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.